Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys. So hopefully you enjoy. I'm going to begin with just a few thoughts on Israel. We are going to be talking about this topic for probably the rest of the year, maybe for much longer. So I want to talk about other things rather than just focusing on one subject on the conflict. Obviously, something else emerges we're going to be talking about this all next week, but there's not so much to uh, new ground to talk about for an entire episode. There's something I really want to talk more about the House Speaker battle and the future of the GOP. Some of that will uh, talk about their stance towards Israel, but otherwise we're going to be focused on that. But I'll get from some few thoughts on that. Is once it, uh, you know Israel keeps delaying its invasion of Gaza, which everyone thought like two weeks ago we would have had it already. Um, Times, uh, still no invasion yet, and Israel is delaying it. And it is because America is telling, or the Biden administration is worried about backlash towards this. They're complaining that the whole point of Biden's trip to Israel was to tell them to not invade Lebanon and not to escalate this to Lebanon. Um, I don't think the Israelis are listening because they keep bombing Hezbollah targets in Lebanon, and there's been some, a lot of activity uh, rockets and stuff coming from Lebanon towards Israel. So I don't think that's uh, going to work out too well for them. But we'll see. I mean, it's going to be very bad if it escalates into, you know, they do a ground invasion of both Gaza and Lebanon. And they really are locked into this ground invasion of Gaza because of, you know, public sentiment in Israel that they demand, um, you know, revenge for the blood spilled in the terror attack and they feel that a ground invasion is the only answer to that. So that is one thing that is happening with the conflict there. We'll keep an eye on it, but it's still too early to determine some of the stuff. A lot of the things that I would have talked about on Israel, I talked about in the IQ supplements. So if you want to listen to that, make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements over at Highly Respected Substack. If you want to listen, which I went over the hospital strike and how this Shows that Israel is pretty is limited in what they can do in the war because they're going to you know lose the propaganda war because just the the you know this hospital parking lot gets bombed and you know it's not clear who struck the parking lot but everyone immediately believed it was like 500 dead and there were riots all throughout the Muslim world you know and riots outside of American consulates and Israeli embassies elsewhere. So uh, there was already this media backlash and it turned out to be not quite the story that uh, had been initially reported. So just imagine when these stories are true of what's happening in Israeli ground invasion. Uh, so it's not looking very good for their uh, ground invasion going into Gaza. If they're, they're, already, having, if they're already losing the propaganda war uh, over uh, their targeted strikes or even fallen rockets on hospital parking lots. So that's something to say. But the other thing, the interesting thing I want to point out is what's going on in the West with like them canceling people who are anti-Israel or are not supportive of the war effort. Probably the dumbest thing I've seen is that is how any person who rips down these missing posters in like cities throughout the world, I mean, they're getting mad about this and people doing that in Europe and in America. You know, there's been people who have lost their jobs over doing it in Miami and New York. And it first off, it's ridiculous to put these missing posters up. What are they supposed to find them in Brooklyn and Miami? Like, what, there's no point to that. Second, it's like some people find it as like 
provocation. I mean, people put up posters all the time and tear them down. It's a part of free speech. But the fact is, is when these people tear down posters, it is seen as horrible, as terrible. It is equivalent to somebody putting up uh, it's okay to be white poster, which can also you know result in job loss and people doxing you. And that's what's happening here. And first off, the posters serve no purpose. Like, you're not going to find them. But they're treated as these sacred objects that you cannot touch or, or, or move or, or desecrate. You have to leave them up for all time. Like, what if somebody's like, you know, you know, going up to remove it just as like a building person? <laughs> Is that person going to lose their job and livelihood over this? Are they going to be docs? I, I find it very, I really don't like the notions that is everyone that's coming out on the right that they need to like cancel and dox and arrest these people just for expressing their their viewpoints some of it is like i think when it comes to the elite levels like when it's with these law students at elite schools or in elite universities who have these really prestigious jobs lined up and then they're losing it you know, it's not for the right reasons that they're losing those jobs, but ultimately these people are horrible leftists and you don't want them to be the future of like elite law firms and stuff. So it's there is a silver lining. But for otherwise, for some of these people who are just tearing, you know, you're just an ordinary person tearing down the poster, they're generally not doing any harm. They're just an average American or someone living in America. Some of them aren't even citizens tearing down a poster. And it's like, whatever, who cares? But they're just incense, intense about this. And they don't, they're not even content with like job loss. They want these people arrested. Fortunately, they're not getting arrested in America, but in elsewhere they are. And even these Canadian conservatives, like I commented on this, like Canadian conservatives are such a joke. All they do all day is just tweet out Justin Trudeau's blackface photo and like, hey, Mr. Trudeau, you forgot this. Oh, 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 look, the blackface photo. And then they get, lose elections by a landslide. Like, they're so pathetic. Like, Canadian conservatives are just a joke. All they do, and they just, for whatever reason, I follow a couple of them. But all the time, they're just, like, focused on this minutiae stuff. And they're like, oh, conservatives are about to win. And then they see the election. And it's like a joke country where everyone's, like, a libtard. And even if you know right-wingers in Canada, they all want to leave Canada. Uh, but the ones, the like, the boomer con equivalent in Canada are there and they're you know they've spent all this time complaining about how the government arrests them for you know having churches open during lockdowns or protesting the lock uh the lockdowns and the trucker protests and they're all complaining about how the government uses their hate speech laws against them but now their whole thing is complaining about the government not using hate speech laws against palestine protesters and it's like look you're arguing for the government to use its powers that it wants to use against you, but it wants to expand it just for the short-term gain of arresting Palestinians. And ultimately what they're doing is expressing, <clears throat> well, in Canada, they don't have the First Amendment, but in America it would be the First Amendment rights. And you always need to stand up for free speech. So I don't really like uh, conservatives suddenly embracing cancel culture uh, over this matter. because And for in certain areas, like in Canada, it's going to come back and bite them in the ass so that's just the thoughts i've had but we're going to move on to the gop thing obviously we're going to come back to this topic i imagine probably next week uh if there is a ground invasion that's probably what's going to be our main topic so don't worry we are going to get back to this but i really want to talk about the house speaker race uh not as much attention has been paid to it due to the crazy news that we've been happening all over the world 
but thankfully, highly respected is going to be on the case. So on to the House Speaker race. Uh, last week, Jim Jordan was supposed to uh, be the candidate, or supposed to be the speaker, but he couldn't get any votes. Is you know they had three rounds of votes, and each time he progressively got fewer or more no votes. At first, start off with twenty, then it went up, you know, higher. It still never got up to thirty. I think the final was tally against him was twenty-five votes, which is higher than any vote taken against McCarthy, and he had the negative uh, progress on this so he was defeated in that and now there's nine people wanting to vie for house speaker uh, all the past candidates uh, scalise mccarthy and jordan are out of the picture so now we're left with nine people most of them are not very serious but i'll read who we who all we've got here we've got jack bergman Never heard of this guy. Byron Donalds, who's one of the few black congressmen, a lot of people would know him. Tom Emmer, who is House Majority or Majority Whip right now. Kevin Hearn, who's head of the Republican Study Committee. We've talked about him before. He was supposed to run in the initial round between Jordan and Scalise, but he dropped out. He's a serious candidate. Mike Johnson of Louisiana, a damn muser. Uh, Gary Palmer, Austin Scott, and Pete Sessions. Pete Sessions has been around for a long time. I remember he was like a powerful congressman even back like 10 years ago. Um, so I don't I don't know how much support he is. If I had to pick, Tom Emmer is definitely going to be one of the top candidates in this. And I would bet the other person who's going to be serious is Kevin Hearn. Um, of the other people, I think Johnson and maybe Sessions <laughs> may get some votes and may get uh may make a mark in the in the battle they're supposed to have a meeting today and i believe they're supposed to take the votes uh tomorrow so we'll see but <clears throat> if i had to pick or if i had to say who are going to be the top two guys i would say tom emmer and kevin hearn uh who would be better there probably kevin hearn uh emmer is not very good uh, emmer and a lot of the conservatives really hate emmer uh, Tucker Carlson hates Emmer because he ran against Jim Banks. Jim Banks is like one of the few America First guys in, in Congress. And, you know, they ran against each other for House Majority Whip and Emmer won in a very close battle, a very grueling battle. And so that has left uh, a lot of conserv House conservatives uh, hostile towards him. So if Emmer is the nominee, uh, the co the conference's nominee, I would expect him to lose in the speak and the votes uh, on the House floor. So I don't think he would be the House Speaker. Uh, if I had to predict of those nine, I would say Kevin Hearn. But I, even then, I don't know because you don't really know. There's all these things are insider baseball. It's all these personality conflicts. It's not even really boiled down to ideology. It's all boils down to. You didn't support me in this battle. You didn't support on this issue. It's it's very much not ideological. It's all personality driven. And I guess there's like a factional element to this because there is the House Freedom Caucus for everyone else. And what the House Freedom Caucus wants is not what everybody else wants. But even some of the House Freedom Caucus members go off on the re off the reservation. Like Ken Buck, who is a House Freedom Caucus guy. He opposed Jim Jordan for his own stupid reasons. So that is, um, you know, they can't keep track of this. And so it's all personality conflicts, all extremely insider baseball. And people are trying to tie this into, you know, America first versus the establishment. 
when it's uh, not even that. The Jordan fight really illustrated a lot of the problems with right-wing conservative media thinking, uh, the conservative entertainment complex thinking. Because it was very funny when this is happening, they were all shocked that people were not voting for Jordan. And they're like, these people are betraying the American people. How dare they not vote for Jordan? This is our outrage that they won't vote for them. And it's like, you know, in January, these same people who are complaining about people not voting for Jordan were the ones defending not voting for McCarthy. You can argue that it was better that they were voting for Ar for McCarthy and friend-enemy distinction, whatever. But generally for an ordinary audience or the people that you're wanting to make these arguments and persuade, they're going to remember that. And also, just a few weeks before, these same people defended um, uh, kicking out McCarthy from the House Speakership. And now they're complaining like, how dare they not vote for this? Person. And these same people a week before were the ones holding out and saying, we'll never vote for Steve Scalise. And now they're complaining that others aren't going to vote for Jordan. And so this is like the way of negotiating. It's, uh, you know, every every all these House Republicans saw through this bullshit are the moderate ones. And they're like, they can't threaten me. And that's true. They couldn't threaten them, threaten them because a lot of them come from moderate districts. And this is not an issue of high importance to ordinary voters. I mean, they, they're noticing the House speakership, but for most ordinary people, they're like, this is just another sign that Washington, D.C. doesn't work. It's another sign of the swamp. And they don't, you know, a lot of the people who read Breitbart and stuff, they really, they like Jim Jordan, but, you know, that's not the majority of Republican voters. They're not as concerned with this. And the threats to primary people and stuff, it's, it, it's, that's not going to even work. It falls on deaf ears. They, they know that that threat is an empty, is hollow. It's the same what happened. I remember when people were threatening to primary the conservatives who were starting to vote for McCarthy in January. And they're like, this person's going to lose their primary. And that's always what happens. You know, I've been involved in this stuff for 10 years. And any time there was like some type of vote or something that conservatives didn't like, like people on the internet are like, we're going to primary this person. And rarely has that threat actually been carried out to full effect, as has it actually worked. I remember there's been several times when uh, Lindsey Graham was supposed to be primaried and lose his election. And he still stayed in power. And if somebody like Lindsey Graham, who is not well-liked by a lot of conservative grassroots, far more than these guys you know, involved in the uh, Jim Jordan, uh, voting against Jim Jordan, you know, how do they expect to be primaried? How do they expect to have these threats carried out? And they generally don't work. The one there's been times where conservatives have been able to primary people they didn't like. It was at the peak of the Tea Party era in 2010 and 2012. They did take down a lot of incumbents. That that didn't actually work in 2014. In 2014, they thought the Tea Party movement would carry on, and all these candidates they were championing would win their primaries. But the only one who won, the only Tea Party candidate who won against an incumbent that year was the one Tea Party candidate the movement hardly supported. And that was Dave Bratt against Eric Cantor. And Eric Cantor was the House Majority Leader, expected to be the next uh, House Speaker after, Jim, uh, after Boehner. And he got defeated by Dave Bratt, who ran on immigration and attacking Cantor for supporting amnesty. And the Tea Party movement hardly supported him, but that was in 2014. And that's pretty much been the last time prior to 2022 when they were actually scalping these incumbents and these challengers were actually winning effectively and, and beating the establishment. And then in 2022, they finally were taking out these incumbents and that was due to Trump. And it was all about Trump. And Trump 
was these were the people who had voted against Trump, who had voted to impeach Trump. And Trump just made a, you know, made it a huge priority to get rid of these people. And he pretty much got rid of everyone except for Dan Newhouse and one other guy. That was it. Everyone else, either they resigned over the fear of losing their primary or they got they lost their primary. And so that was like one of the first times that it happened. But that was all because of Trump. It was because they had impeached Trump, who was the leader and avatar of the conservative movement and right-wingers. And they had betrayed him and they had betrayed the conservative movement and the real people of America by doing this. And Republican voters turned against them like Liz Cheney and others. And that's why that was able to succeed. It, this is the having you know wanting primary threats in moderate districts that are even districts where Biden won. And the whole issue is saying these guys didn't vote for Jim Jordan. They're not going to give a shit. That's not an issue that is that as important. If it was like Trump involved here, if it was something like Trump involved, you know, Trump has supported both McCarthy and Jim Jordan. He likes both, so it's. You know, he and he's involved in his own matters. He's trying to win. You know, he's trying to become president. He's trying to fend off his legal challenges. He doesn't have the energy to spend on these primary challenges. So it's they all know it's a hollow threat and they don't have to worry about it. And so the pressure campaign they built up against these congressmen ensured they voted against Jordan because they'd have these, you know, they'd have conservatives call in and like, ah, you know, with vague death threats and stuff. And that just pissed them off. And they're like, you know, most of these people are outside their district. They don't even have to worry about these constituents. So they they stuck to their guns. So it it real it illustrated a couple different fallacies. One that the conservative position or the right wing position represents the will of the people or the will of the majority. And that's what all these Jordan people were saying. It's like, this is the will of the real American people. This is what they want. This is what, and they're betraying that. Reality, most people don't give a shit. It's uh, the House speakership, not caring. Trump impeachment, bigger deal. It's very important to Republican primary voters, but not really important to ordinary Americans. Now, when Jordan fight, not that important to Republican primary voters. So they're not really representing the will of the people. And when you have, but when you build up this notion that you are representing them, you feel like you can do anything, but you actually don't have that popular capital to use for your side. You, people mistake conservative media consumers as the real American majority when they're not. And they're not even the majority of GOP primary voters. There's a significant faction of it, but they're not able to wield that power politically, uh, as effectively politically. And that's what I've always tried to ar- articulate when it comes to the conservative entertainment complex and insane clown party notions is that the conservatives are able to mobilize themselves to punish certain companies that depend on a demographic that is Republican leaning like Bud Light, which has a demographic of bros that are, don't want to drink the gay beer, and they're able to mobilize those people to convince that demographic to not drink Bud Light due to an offense caused by Bud Light. But when it comes to political power, they're not able to wield that mobilization as effectively because they're not representing the popular will as they imagine they are. And the popular will is just not involved in the House speakership. 
They don't really care much about Jim Jordan. It's really just a major issue for Breitbart readers and Daily Wire uh, listeners. But even for them, they're mostly, uh, for Daily Wire listeners, they're mostly concerned about Israel right now. They're not that concerned about Jim Jordan. So, you know, it's not an argument that they're winning. And the second fallacy is that just being tough or having the will or just, you know, threatening to use, you know, threats and all their things of like, we're going to destroy you is an effective tool for the right is how we can get our way doesn't actually work. Because if you've always seen these arguments, like we just need to use state power, we just need the will to do these things, and then we can accomplish these things. And so it is this idea that we can just bully our way into uh, convincing people who don't want to support things into supporting things. And there's not really a moral argument to that. It's just that we're representing the will of people and you get on our side or you're going to get destroyed. And to a lot of people, it comes off as, you know, douchebag and they're not going to and they're not inclined to support this because there's ultimately nothing. There are no incentives to support. There's nothing. As I said earlier, there's nothing behind these threats. So it's simply this person without any real power coming up to them and saying, you better vote for this or you're going to regret it. And it's like, what is going to happen to me? Um, Something. We'll think about that. We're going to use state power that we don't have against you. And these guys just see this as a bluff. They're like, they see them as full of shit. They call them out and then nothing happens to them. And it hasn't really been convincing because you've seen all these guys is that saying like, well, you know, Ron DeSantis can just arrest people or he can use his bully pulpit against it. It has worked with Trump when he can go after lawmakers to attack them and bring them down and bring them to heel. And it did work in some circumstances when Tucker Carlson was on air and he would rip into a congressman and that congressman would fear that backlash. But now with Tucker Carlson no longer on air and now with Trump dealing with his own issues and not really that concerned with the House Speaker race, you know, there's no real way. It's like, oh, Breitbart attacks you. Oh, you know, Red State attacks you. Who gives a shit? They don't have to worry about that. Like Red State is not determining what their voters are saying. And so they were able to move around it. There is no persuasion or negotiation tactic to get what they want. And there's just also unrealistic expectations of what Jordan can do and how what the you know Republican Congress can do. It's extremely divided. The GOP caucus, even if Jordan did become speaker, he would have a hard time getting the whole caucus lined up behind their pri- their policy priorities. He was not going to get them. To, he was not going to get the whole caucus lined up to support defunding Ukraine. He was not. He would could have gotten the whole caucus lined up to do something about the border. But that's pretty much it. Ukraine, you know, the only thing that could have done helped with Ukraine is if simply they had to make a choice between Israel and Ukraine. Unfortunately, and I thought that would be more likely, but unfortunately for Republicans, they want both. Even though there's a lot of Republican leaders who want the bills decoupled from each other, they want funding for Israel separate from funding for Ukraine. But for most of Republicans, or at least a lot of Republicans, they're still supporting both. And I do, you will maybe see some decline in support for Ukraine if they see that, you know, maybe the American, America can't cover both wars, which we can't. 
but our leaders think we can. And Democrats all say that we can cover both, which uh, we can't. We have to make a decision on which one. And maybe in that scenario, Republicans would. But I don't think that was going to come up in the budget battle. Uh, I think, the, And I think the GOP is too hopelessly divided. I think these moderates uh, really want to pay back, who are really outraged with the conservatives uh, in their caucus, the fact that they removed McCarthy, the fact they didn't go with Steve Scalise, and the fact they were trying to impose somebody on them, which would give them a huge victory. And that didn't, that's not what they really wanted. And they feel that it's time to just like, you know, tell the conservatives to go fuck off. And they unfortunately had that power to do that. And conservatives don't really aren't in a position to enforce their will on them. Because, uh, you know, just having, you know, tweets and stuff saying this person's a rhino, they, they're probably not even on Twitter. And their constituents aren't really on Twitter either. So they don't have to worry about it. And so I think those are two big fallacies that I see a lot on the right is that one, they represent the will of the people in the majority, which in a lot of cases they don't. And two, the only way to convince this is just through puffing out your chest and making these acting like a bully and just saying we're going to use state power because and this shredder mindset, you know, the shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is that we're going to wield power and destroy you without any moral argument or convincing per level of persuasion is an actual effective tactic to get people on your side is actually not an effective tactic. So those are two things that I think were exposed by the Jordan fight. And it's been a huge loss. It's been a huge L for conservatives is that this McCarthy fight is everyone was, when this first happened, everyone's like, this is a huge win. We're finally sending a message to the swamp. This is great. And McCarthy really wasn't great. You know, we could imagine someone better, but it's, the main problem with McCarthy is that the caucus is not very great and they have a razor thin majority. If they had a bigger majority, they could do a lot more, whoever the House Speaker was. And McCarthy, unlike a lot of the alternatives, was able to keep some of the caucus together and some of it focused. I'm not a McCarthy fan, but I'm just saying, for pragmatically speaking, there isn't much better choice. I think Jordan would have been better, but... I think the only thing different about Jordan is that if Jordan was remained focused on the border is that like that's his number one priority, I think he could have gotten more done than McCarthy. But it was going to be very tough for him because the moderates were aggrieved. And I don't know if he had the ability to persuade them. And actually, I do know he didn't have the ability to persuade them because they voted against him. And then when he was wanting to remain speaker designee, uh, last Friday they removed him. They voted no confidence in him from the entire caucus. So... He didn't have the ability to lead. And that's unfortunate because he's the best alternative. I don't know uh, who would be better now. I mean, Hearn would probably be fine. Uh, Emmer wouldn't be great. He would, he's the most pro-Ukraine of all the co possible candidates, and he would have no consideration for uh, defunding Ukraine, even if Israel needed it or Israel demanded more money and they couldn't afford paying both. He would still try to pay both. But in any case, is the situation better for conservatives to accomplish things in, on Capitol Hill with McCarthy gone? And the answer right now is no. Was a serious message sent to, uh, to D.C. through McCarthy's removal? I, I think at first, if you would have gotten someone better, maybe. But at this time, I don't think you're going to get anyone better. You're going to either get someone worse in Emmer or maybe someone equal, but maybe not as... 
as quite able to get the caucus together and caucus focus. So I don't and I don't think you'd really accomplish anything. And most of what the original motivations for getting rid of McCarthy were personal. I mean, they as once again, as I need to emphasize, this is nothing has to do. This is very little to do with ideology. It's mainly that they have personal differences with McCarthy and stuff. And I, they're probably legitimate, but this is not something that concerns ordinary voters in the same way that concerns congressmen. McCar- uh, Gates's reasoning was a lack of support for Gates over a health ex- a house ethics investigation, and this is retaliation for that. Uh, and that was his vote. Nancy Mace, Burchett, Ken Buck all had idiotic reasons for wanting to vote against McCarthy. Uh, so there is, and it wasn't quite an ideological like establishment versus America first. I mean, Nancy Mace, Ken Buck are not America first whatsoever, <laughs> you know, and they're just standard, you know, Republican types. So it wasn't quite illustrated that. And then you're like, well, now they're going to stand up for the people. And pe- and there was all these types of demands that they're saying like, well, McCarthy didn't release every single minute of J6 footage, but he released a ton of it. And he kept releasing more and more of it that was demanded by conservatives. He had launched an impeachment inquiry into Biden because that's what conservatives wanted, even though a lot of moderates didn't want that. And he was, you know, they could have pushed him more on the border to do better on what immigration demands, but he was... He was open to getting pushed out. And I think it would have been better for conservatives after the budget, the first budget battle, and they passed a, a stupid continuing resolution that didn't accomplish any of their goals, is then to hold his feet to the fire to demand, hey, this is what we want you to do in the next budget battle. Otherwise, we're going to have a motion to vacate and you do this. And I think threatening him in that regard, rather than just voting to remove him, would have been better because I think the then the GOP could have united to do something serious on the border or even maybe on Ukraine. And those were real possibilities. I think especially now if the if they hadn't had removed the House Speaker and the Israel stuff had come up, that they would have been in a stronger position to demand defunding Ukraine. Uh, and they had a clear leader to you know go to and threaten over that. But now, you know, they didn't have it. And so I don't think that they're in a better position to accomplish right-wing goals on Capitol Hill. And that's uh, that's always been my main issue with that. Is that. And they didn't really have a backup plan. You know, Jordan, they, you know, Gates was pro-Scalise. He was just like anyone but McCarthy. It was simply just, I hate McCarthy. I want him gone. And a lot of those eight thought that as well. They just wanted McCarthy gone uh, because of their personal differences with him. Um wasn't quite the ideological battle. And then they would just make up reasons for to justify it. And, and and even what it comes down to, like the things of broken promises, these aren't really major concerns to anyone. Like the annual appropriations bills, like no one gives a shit about that outside of Washington, D.C. And this is all just Tea Party nonsense that, you know, it's like we're limiting government, we're cutting spending. No one gives a shit about that, especially with all the problems facing our country today. It's you know, not what the people care about, but then they're pretending this is what the people care about, but it's not. And this is what their justification for getting rid of McCarthy was. If it could have been that he was not wanting to do anything on the border or any of these other concerns, then that would be in a serious justification for it. But that wasn't even the concern. It was all over these, the particular way they're passing appropriations bills, which is insider baseball. No one outside of the Washington DC cares about it. 
And that was their saying the will of the people rose up and said they wanted to get rid of McCarthy. Maybe that I you know, most Republican voters said that they was fine with getting rid of McCarthy, but it's not a high priority for them. And they haven't figured out someone better to replace him yet. But the right just wants something to be done. I, I've been seeing people criticize me for the same that are like, you hate the right doing anything. And, you know, when you do something, you're supposed to have a positive result for it. Just doing things for the sake of doing things is not a real strategy. I even remember doing this back in the old alt-right days. Like people would have these like idiotic demonstrations with horrible optics, you know, and there'd be like, Clansman, Klansmen there and stuff, and you're like, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? They're like, at least they're doing something. This we gotta do something. We doing something is better than nothing. And sometimes actually doing nothing is way better than doing something because doing something can sometimes destroy your whole side and make everything worse. I mean, if you even want to go back to the alt right example, uh, Charlottesville was doing something, and that was a horrible. Horrible mistake that destroyed the helped destroy the alt right. But at least they were doing something. Now, when it comes to politics, people will always have that. It's like, well, we need to do something. And sometimes that something can be totally idiotic and dumb. And this can be applied to anything. It's like if you want to see what happened after 9-11, it's like we invade Iraq. Well, that's dumb. It's like, well, it's better than doing nothing. We gotta do something. We gotta show the terrorists we mean something. And so that's like always the dumbest justification for any action is that, well, at least they're doing something. No, a lot of times it's better to do nothing. Like in Iraq, it would have been better if we hadn't invaded, but people felt like we had to do something against the terrorists. So then we invaded. And then it happens with a lot of political decisions where people are like, we have to do something. And then they do something and then it backfires and it makes you more unpopular and hurts your position. And then they're like, well, uh, at least it was something. That's not a justification for any action. And I always see that as that like people want to say, well, at least we're doing something. And they say that's good enough reason for that. But I think it's uh, I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that they feel the right feels politically powerless at this point because, you know, the presidency is controlled by the Democrats. The Senate's controlled by the Democrats. A lot of our institutions are controlled by the left. The one institution we have that has any nominal Republican control is the House of Representatives. But the House of Representatives is very limited in what they can do. But we expect them to do all these things to, you know, defund Jack Smith, uh, defund Ukraine, uh, arrest Biden over immigration, you know, impeach by impeach the entire administration, all these things that they expect them to do, but they're very limited in what they can do because one, that's just the House of Representatives. Two, they have a razor thin majority, and of that even razor thin majority, it's like extremely divided. So they're not very able to do anything. So instead of just trying to settle for what they can do, people want to just punish those who they feel they have the power to punish. And one of those people is Kevin McCarthy. And they feel that by removing him from the speakership, they feel that they're doing something, that they're asserting their power in a situation they feel they don't have any power. And they feel, and then that gives them a sense of, a positive sense of what they're doing and a positive sense of that we're actually accomplishing something when in fact they're not really accomplishing much at all, or it could be hurting them. I don't think McCarthy removing McCarthy is 
that grave of a mistake of something uh, like the Iraq War <laughs> or Charlottesville was for the old right. I it can I just don't think it's this huge victory that people imagined it was. I think you you know he's not great McCarthy. There's tons of people who would be better in that position. I don't trust him, but I think when you compare him to the people behind him in leadership of Emmer. Scalise, uh, Stefanik, you know, uh, I don't know if she's still in the House leadership role, but if you look at those three, he's better than them. You know, he's better than them. You know, he's more pro-Trump uh, besides Stefanik. You know, he's more pro-Trump than them. He's more beholden to what co- he cares more about what conservatives say than them. You know, he's more willing to do some stuff. Uh, yeah, we could, Jordan would be obviously better, but it's also who can unite the caucus together to accomplish things. And so I, I don't really like this. We have to do something and something happens and you don't have the you don't have positive results from it. But then people are just like, well, at least we did something. And a lot of this is just the insane clown party comes to Washington. Uh, I know this is already some people are upset about this. I don't know if this segment's going to go well, but I have to admit this really is what the insane clown party looks like when it's taken to a legislative task. And I was even talking about this last week. Just look at the clowns that that dominate the Republican Party on Capitol Hill. I like Matt Gates. Matt Gates still has a lot of potential. That's always been my issue is that this could hurt him and his ability to gain more power within the GOP. And it might not have been the smartest move, but I'm still very pro-Gates. I still think he has a lot of potential. He's still very charismatic. He's still solid on all the issues. So, Otherwise, uh, but we're able to disagree and see that there's maybe some weaknesses to some positions he takes. But I'm still very pro-Gates. I just think it was not the wisest decision. But I think if you look at the rest of the GOP, I mean, it's just like clown show. Like Lauren Boebert, MTG, clowns. These guys like dressing up in IDF uniforms and uh, Brian Mass, clowns. Like the fact that Byron Donalds thinks he can become House Speaker just because he's a black guy, clown. This is all like a circus show. And they're not even doing anything, but they're able to convince their followers that they're doing something because, well, they just did something. It's like, we we t- we took down Washington, D.C. By, vo- by getting rid of McCarthy. It's like, oh, well, are you securing the border? No. Are you helping to ensure Ukraine uh, doesn't get more of our tax dollars? No. Oh, then what are you doing? You're not actually doing something. You're just sounding like you're doing something. But that's enough to convince the conservative entertainment complex that you're actually doing something. And so when it comes to the insane clown party taking Washington, rather than actually shaking up Washington and making the swamp work for America, it's all these people just doing these hijinks and shenanigans to get themselves media attention and more retweets and more small dollar donations. And But they're not actually changing America. It's just like they turn... Capitol Hill into a carnival. And I unfortunately think that might be the future of the GOP with how things are turning for the party. I got a question from uh, Mystery. He was asking, he's like, you know, what do you think is going to be the future of the party? And I guess this would count as a Connolly question. So, but we'll give the reminder for Connolly questions for the uh, rest of the episodes. And he was wondering what is the future for the dissident right? And I'll read out his question in full. It's, he asks, 
Uh, hold on a sec. He asked, Scott, will you do it? Or he just asked if I would do a segment on the distant right goals for the post-Trump GOP. This is what the segment is. You mentioned Gates a lot, and he's good, but our bench seems disturbingly shallow. Blake Masters and Jake, Joe Kent lost. Vance has been underwhelming equally. What about D Terry? I think he meant deproletarizing the GOP. Trump got this started, but the insane clown party also lands at his feet. Losing the country club vote has been a disaster. How can we reverse this trend? So I'll go and like what the post-Trump GOP will look like. And really, you know, as I said, this is really this House Speaker battle illustrates it is that one, you're still going to have these establishment business first types that just want to go there and do standard business. And there's going to be a lot of them and they're not all removed and you don't really have the power to push them to totally go into House Freedom Caucus territory. So you still have those people. At the same time, you have the House Freedom Caucus feeling emboldened by conservative media and the nature of social media and the amount of uh, grassroots support they get that they feel that they can just do these actions that in the era of John, of, of Boehner and others, they weren't able to do. I think I called him Jim Boehner earlier. It's John Boehner, but it's John Boehner in the era that they couldn't get that done. But now they can. And people are like, well, this is massive improvement, but they're actually not accomplishing these things. So you still are going to have a lot of the old guards still there. They're not going to be there. And you have to persuade them in a way that's smart and actually going to lead to serious action. And so far, it's not doing that. When it comes to what type of leadership we have or what goals we can have, we do have a shallow bench. Because even, you know, with how goofy and clownish, like a lot of our leaders on Capitol Hill are the biggest clowns. It's like MTG and Boebert. They're the most likely to, you know, retweet something that uh, the distant right is saying and bring this idea to the fore. I mean, uh, MTG proposed an immigration moratorium. And she was the first to, I think, well, both Boebert and MTG proposed impeaching Biden. Uh, they had dueling impeachment proposals and they hated each other over that. Uh, but they're willing to bring these ideas to the fore. But at the same time, it makes it seem unserious that you had the biggest clowns in, on, in Congress suggesting this. It maybe gets things started, but if you do, if you do have like somebody that no one has respect for, no matter what they propose... People are not going to have respect for that position. And so that's one of the unfortunate aspects that go along with this with these battles. But so you have that. And the clowns can't be expected to stick to the serious issues. They're going to go down a lot of paths to gain as much attention and, and do that. And then when you have the serious people, they're not as they're, you know, pretty unenthusiastic or not as exciting. J.D. Vance is OK. It's just the Senate is not able to do much right now. But if you look at what he's doing, he's standing strong for Trump. He's questioning the Ukraine war. You know, he's talking, he's still talking about immigration. It's just more his style and personality. It's not given to be that type of strong right-wing leader we have. I mean, the best senator right now is Tommy Tuberville, who's just like a, a awakened boomer who just like goes off. He's like, Your immigration is destroying Europe reparations is to would reward criminals and stuff and it's like if i had to look on rhetorically and even what on actions he's like he's single-handedly holding up all these military actions because the military is too woke and too left-wing and he wants changes and he can't be convinced to change that and i think that's a respectable position 
And if I had to ask who was the best senator, I would say Tommy Tuberville. Tommy Tuberville even defends uh, quote unquote white nationalists in the military. <laughs> like he is like rhetorically and action wise, this guy is by far the best. But he, you wouldn't have expected him to be the best because he ran against somebody we thought would be the best in Jeff Sessions. And he won. Uh, and we were disappointed with like this guy's be the establishment dude. And then he gets in Congress and he's one of the best guys. He's he is the best senator there. And so I, you know, that could be somebody that you have. But I don't think you can expect Tommy Tuberville to be uh, the leader, the next rising leader. I think he's in his 70s. So he's um, he's just kind of an awakened boomer, which is awesome. I, I appreciate that. But you can't really expect him to be the leader of the rising generation. Uh, yeah, Blake Masters lost. Like, Blake Masters may get in the congressional race, but he's going to have a tough time. I don't know if even Trump will endorse him because the guy's running against, uh, I, I don't know, Hamada or... I. I'm probably not even pronouncing the guy's correct name, but uh, the guy who's in the race is also extremely pro-Trump and has a lot of cachet among Trump supporters. So that guy might get even the nomination or get the Trump's endorsement. So I don't know what will be there. Yeah, you don't you don't really have that type of the real problem we have is we don't have a serious people who are up there arguing for our issues. We have a few, but a lot of them aren't, they have, they lack that type of energy and excitement. You know, you do have like the JD Vance and the Josh Hawley who sometimes go into this stuff, but they, you know, they're not really a hundred percent there. And also they go through a lot of cringe stuff. Hey, Josh Hawley is supporting these UAW strikers. That's just, like ridiculous and he also had this stupid speech after uh george floyd's death where he was talked about how that was the wor one of the worst things he's ever seen and so he's and he just doesn't have that charisma he doesn't have that personality either to really illustrate that the only person who really combines that with the personality with a degree of seriousness even though he sometimes gets lumped in with the clowns but he is a a, a step above the clowns is Matt Gates? That's really the only person we have who is somewhat serious enough. Like people do take him seriously in a way they don't take MTG and Bobert seriously. Not as seriously as we'd wish, and maybe that's due to some of his own actions. But what he says matters, and the GOP does take you know notice of him. He's as serious as Ted Cruz was in Ted Cruz's first term. You know, Ted Cruz had a lot of the same reputation as Matt Gates did when he first got to Washington because, you know, he was helping to shut down the government and the establishment really hated him and denounced him in the media, much like they do with Gates. So I, I think he's serious enough. He's far more serious than all the other clowns that we have. And he's able to do things. I mean, he did do the motion of vacate, made him not the smartest decision, but he is that. So really, when you're looking at a congressional level and for rising generations that they're they're youngish, you know, they're under 60, you really just have Gates. Uh, on the GOP level. So there's not a whole, there's not a deep bench after Trump. I mean, you look at somebody like DeSantis. DeSantis just does not have the personality type, does not have that that level. And the way he's just ruining himself, and I, it's just the bad vibes all around. Like his campaign just is like extremely angry, extremely arrogant. They still think they're going to sweep this election, that he's actually the, the dominant front runner, even though he's in some polls slipping to, uh, to single digits and is virtually tied with Nikki Haley now. You know, but that's like some of the leadership. He just doesn't have that spark. He's like has a terrible personality, terrible charisma. 
He's not somebody who could be a leader of the movement. And there, we're left with just Gates. You know, Josh Hawley doesn't have that either. And certainly not, and J.D. Vance doesn't have that. So that is one thing we don't, we definitely lack, is that our ideas are getting out there more in the mainstream. A lot of these staffers in the House and Senate are adopting a lot of these ideas and then sharing them with their lawmakers or with their bosses. And there's a lot of surprising establishment people who are now saying things that would have only been said in our corner a few years ago, like Tommy Tuberville. And even Bill Haggerty, who's a Tennessee senator who's very establishment, you know, he's very strong on immigration. No one would have expected that, but it's a lot due to his staffers. So you are making those little impacts, but in terms of like having a clear and definite leader for somebody who's going to replace Trump, because Trump, you know, can't be around forever, obviously, you really just have Gates who fits that bill. And Gates has a few issues, and but he's the best we have. Because otherwise, you just have a lot of clownishness. And I think clownishness is going to be a lot to the... <laughs> it's going to be a lot of what we're going to see in the future. Is that I see a lot of the future of the post-Trump GOP, post-Trump right, is that it is going to be insane clown party, but there's still going to be opportunities for us to advance our ideas. The real goal is to ensure that those ideas don't become seen as clownish, you know, that they're not like QAnon, you know, they're not like the mole children theories, that there's something that, you know, people who are well-read, who are going to elite schools, that they will adopt and say that, that I believe in this. You don't want this to be just the, you know, on the level of the mole children conspiracy theories. And that's a real point that we have to do in the future. And, and there's going to be a ton of opportunities for us, but we're also going to be dealing with a lot of cringe and a lot of stupidity from our side. I mean, I saw a new, there is a new rap song that came out that Michael Flynn was endorsing. And it's like this, this song is shows what's going on in America. And it has like three guys racially, uh, I guess they're all Hispanic because one guy is like Latinos for Trump or something. And that's like his name. And he's like the rapper. And it begins with a fat guy who I assume is a Hispanic, but race unknown. He could be black. Even that 4G out of blow is actually white. That's actually the funniest thing. They're, they're post-Trump, post-racialism is this. They're moving beyond uh, black and white or any known race. They're just becoming something else. Uh, that's like the multiracial working classes that they're all mixed up and you can't tell what they are because of the face tattoos and other things and the uh, wigger wear that they're wearing. But this guy, they began with a dude with a cowboy hat on. He's doing a type of you know, pop country singing over something and then it goes to rap music and it's like just like downright terrible and stupid but it's like a lot of our audience loves that and that's like what I talk about with the Insane Clown Party is that you're going to have just a ton of stupidity a ton of things that we're not going to be supporting but there is at the same time you're going to have a ton more opportunities to influence lawmakers to influence what conservative media is talking about to influence what the American majority is is thinking about and discussing and feels is important. At the same time, you're going to have to find a position that resists the clown show, that is rises above the insane clown party and focuses on what's serious and important. And I think that's always, I think it's also going to be important that when it comes to actions and what we support is that a lot of people are going to be tempted to support whatever scene is the most 
anti-establishment move or whatever the GOP conservative lawmakers, whatever the hardest position that they're taking will instinctively support that just as, you know, habit. But I don't think that that might be the right position. I don't think we should oppose them outright because those are the people most likely to spread our ideas. But we shouldn't just single, you know, just single-mindedly embrace all these things and follow along with March stuff because a lot of times doing something is worse than nothing. And a lot of times you're just going to be associated with the clown show. And you don't want, as this is the theme I keep emphasizing, you don't want to do that. And so when it comes to the House Speaker race, I think that a lot of our guys were, you know, were wanting to support the McCarthy thing because they see this guy as a terrible establishment shill. You know, he's pro-Ukraine. He sucks. We want to eliminate the establishment. We want to make the party better. And I think that's an understandable position, and that's a position I sympathize with. But, you know, not everything that happens in that level is going to go the way we expect, and sometimes it can end up worse. And I'm worried that that could happen with the House Speakership. And too many times it can look like we're just supporting the clown show rather than supporting actually making our country better and actually putting our country on the right track. And so that's going to be a challenge in the future because Trumpism without Trump is not this, you know, boring stuff that's like Josh Hawley is wanting and we're just focused on workers' rights and stuff and we're avoiding the inflammatory rhetoric and the uh, entertaining rhetoric. It's more that it's going to be the entertaining and inflammatory rhetoric without the policies. So everyone has always imagined that Trumpism without Trump would be the policies without the rhetoric, but instead Trumpism without Trump is going to be the rhetoric without the policies. (laughs) It's the carnival without the America first positions. And I view that as a lot of what we're seeing with the House Freedom Caucus because they're not fighting for what we care about most, which is immigration and foreign policy and those type of things. They're just focused on like taxes and, and spending cuts like no one gives a shit about that. But they have the clown show aspect to them. So people gravitate towards it for just that reason. And you can even see this with some of the MAGA raps and stuff. Like you could see MAGA raps like celebrating Jim Jordan and or tax cuts and stuff. And it's like it, it's just the carnival without the policies. So that was um, so that was something wrong that everyone hoped for. They just wanted the policies without the carnival. But instead, we're just going to get the carnival without the policies. So, but at the same time, that doesn't mean an end for what we believe are a elimination of opportunities to do something better it's just a new challenge we have to face and a new paradigm that we're going to have to overcome a final thought i have on this is the thing we have to emphasize is to not lose our being or not lose our spirit is a big part of the greer head pledge is about restoring a type of wasp ideal or wasp norms is that we're dressing nice we're looking nice we're not smoking weed we're not getting face tattoos we're not listening to rap music we're not becoming redditors and and following along with marvel movies we're making ourselves better and we're transcending the moment and a lot of that is going to require us to not descend into this level of the Serious multiracial working class that's going to be serving as a large part of the conservative constituency in the years to come. And this multiracial working class is not going to be what people like Josh Hawley imagined it is. It's going to be people who are totally down for the clown show. There's not going to be that many blacks involved. It's going to be 
this mixture between working class whites and Hispanics that is already happening on a level of demographically because a new study came out showing that how many births are happening in America and it's estimated that only 39% of births, new births were to parents that are both non-Hispanic white. And a lot of the interracial marriages and couplings that are happening among whites are with Hispanics. And it's usually happening at the working class level, the downscale level. And that's just what's happening. If you talk to anybody who's like in these communities, they say, yeah, like, yeah, a lot of the young girls that are there are now marrying Hispanic men for various reasons. They think that they're more likely to commit early on. Uh, maybe they have, they think they have better employment. <laughs> I don't know if that's the smartest way, but they feel that they're more likely to make it a commitment early on. If there's these girls want to get married straight out of high school, the Hispanic men are more willing to do that than the white guys. That's what I'm told. Whether that's true in every scenario, of course, that can be fact-checked. But there is a lot of this pairing. And that's not just with white women with Hispanic men. That's also with white men and Hispanic men. And as we can see on right-wing Twitter, which a lot of it sometimes is Southeast Asian. But So that's like what's happening at that level is that a lot of that future generation is going to be uh, a, a little off-white. <laughs> a little off-white. There will be counted, you know, they will probably look largely white and they'll vote like ordinary working class white voters but there'll be something different to them and a lot of that people are going to be totally down for the clown show if you look at what hispanics love they love uh, they love a music that's even worse than rap reggaeton and they love fast and furious movies uh, now imagine what they're going to the type of aesthetics and content they're going to like from po political politically it, it's not going to be great <laughs> it's definitely going to be the insane clown party stuff so you do have to resist that temptation to become just like them because I feel that a lot of times for our side, we think that anything associated with working class whites or downscale whites is inherently good. It's, it's awesome. It's what we have to associate with. Sometimes it's like fine to associate with these things like NASCAR, um, country music, you know, that type of stuff is fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And it's like, oh yeah, libs can't handle this. You know, that stuff's fine. But a lot of times they will just celebrate their behavior. It's like, uh, you know, not not getting good grades in school or, or uh, having kids out of wedlock or, uh, you know, these not actually providing a stable home for these kids. You know, a drug addiction, alcohol. There's a lot of problems that happen with associating with the, the downscale communities. It's a little bit arrogant way of saying it, but uh, you know what I'm saying. I feel uh, over time that a lot of people are going to be like, this white Hispanic mixture, this white Hispanic working class that's going to be still largely conservative despite the mixture with Hispanics. And people are going to be like, this is who we got to support. And this is who we got to celebrate. And instead of the Greer Head pledge, they're going to have the Gutierrez Head pledge <laughs> of some sort. And we have to uh, avoid that, uh, that temptation to go into that. Is that we do want to, no matter how much the country falls away from that Anglo-Protestant founding stock of ours. We have, and ignore the Protestant thing. It's like, you can be Protestant or Catholic. We're, we're not into religious sectarianism here. You know, that Anglo, as the country moves away from the Anglo standards and Anglo demographically, the dissident right must stand firmly for the Anglos and for our standards and the way we dress and the way we comport ourselves and the way we handle ourselves. Because 
We should not succumb to the pro-drift or the proletarianization of the right that everyone is going with. Because if we just become, I mean, yeah, they're still going to be largely conservative, but they're not going to have any power. And they're just going to be off doing their own thing while libtards are running the country and doing what they please. And they're off and the working class whites and Hispanic mixtures are just enjoying NASCAR or whatever or whatever they're doing. And yeah, they'll still be voting Republican, but they won't be able to have the power. And also, it'll be a descent of the white man to a level that he sh that he shouldn't be. It's that they're now we're now the surf population, the demi population. We can enjoy as many tattoos as we want, but we can't enjoy having sovereignty over our own country. And the only way we can have sovereignty over our country is if we have enough people willing to take elite positions and willing to compromise a, a counter elite to our current elite rather than having uh, being the entire accepting proletarianization and pro drift. And so a huge part of what I advocate for, you know, in Greer Ed Pledge and podcasts and articles is to tell people not to succumb to parole drift. It's very tempting. It's like, oh, we don't have to deal with the bugman, don't have to deal with the libtards. We'll just take this, go to trade school. We'll move out to the middle of nowhere. We'll have a great life. This is not what Klaus Schwab wants. And in fact, it's actually what the elite want. It's what Klaus Schwab wants, is that once you're out of the picture, they don't have to worry about you. They don't have to worry about having these ideas come to the fore and dominate our society. Is that they're in their own little nice little ghetto their own little nice isolated area, and that's where they stay. And the clownishness, the clown show, the insane clown party furthers, isolates us, which a huge part of ourselves is having to make ourselves look serious and relatable and high, you know, respectable, respectable people in a way. I don't want to say respectable in that we're always caring about what the liberal press says and the conservative press was, but it's to a normal person. They say this person has their shit together. This person looks like an upstanding individual. And what are they standing up for? And they're not just, you know, wanting to be carnival barkers and that stuff. And that's something that we have to say. And a lot of this, yes. So I think even mystery said this is that some of the carnival aspects were unleashed by Trump. But when Trump did, it was awesome. <laughs> and Trump, that was part of his ability to win, is that he made this entertaining and exciting. The problem is, is everyone who follows up to his uh, standard, they forget the policies and they just take the entertainment aspect. And that's, uh, that's something that we need to avoid. So I am repeating myself a lot, so I'm going to conclude on that, is that we have to rise above the occasion. We have to transcend the white hispanic working class that's going to be there we have to resist pro drift we have to resist the insane clown party we have to focus on being serious and looking presentable and ups and keeping alive those anglo traditions and anglo norms that made america great and made us a place that people wanted to live in and we don't do that by succumbing to pro drift and you know, getting face tattoos and smoking weed and listening to rap or reggaeton. Reggaeton is actually, I really have to decide, reggaeton is worse than rap. When I hear reggaeton coming out of cars, it's like the same damn beat all the time. I get very angry. It's even angrier than rap music. So, uh, but we have to resist that. So that is the concluding topic for a regular discussion. We're going to go into the COD Elite questions now. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognolite option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at Highly Respected, 
www.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we've got a lot of questions today and I'll, I'll answer the second question from uh, mystery. He asks one more IQ question. What do you think about limiting the franchise in America? Is there any realistic prospect to return the U- USA to a limited Republic as the founders are intended? Are we stuck with universal mass suffrage? How, which categories? If so, I'm thinking about banning net tax welfare recipients seem sort of realistic in like 50 years. No, we're going to have mass. We're going to be stuck with universal mass suffrage. It's more about, uh, making it more difficult to vote or creating more standards to vote like the, you know, voter ID, making it, you know, ending opportunities with mail and ballots. And that's really, you really want to make it that so that the people who are going to vote have to face at least some challenges to vote is that you're wanting, and that's going to indicate a degree of competence and intelligence that certain people have. If it's requiring you to register and you have to go through a process to register and you have to have a voter ID, that's, that is, that does indicate that you have some degree of intelligence that you're able to do that. And also making it it's that just one day is that you have to plan all your schedule around ensuring you have enough time to go vote. And that's going to ensure that a smarter and competent people are doing that. Universal mass. We are stuck with universal mass suffrage. I know a lot of people aren't going to like that answer, but there's not going to, <laughs> you're not going to convince people to repeal the 19th. Not, not for, uh, not democratically at least. So, uh, you know, we talk about it. It's it's funny. It's funny memes. I'm not like bothered by the memes and stuff, but no, realistically speaking, no, we're stuck with universal mass suffrage. So it's about uh, election reforms to ensure that it's it's not that we and we have to oppose efforts like automatic voter registration and expanding mail-in ballots and stuff. And that's really where we have to come down to rather than trying to overturn universal mass suffrage. And a lot of that stuff would be directed towards our voters. I remember when Trump was winning the primaries back in 2016, a lot of conservatives said, we need, a, we, need a, we, need a, we need to restrict the franchise because they felt that it was all these dumb working class rubes from the trailer park, when in fact it was not. It was generally the people who were middle class from those areas who were seeing how their communities had been destroyed and they were voting for Trump. But they, conservatives imagine it was all meth heads. So they wanted to have a, a poll, they wanted to bring back poll tests and even, uh, you know, they had to pay a fine to vote. And that stuff is just so un, unbelievably unpopular that you wouldn't do that. Unless there's like some, the thing is if you cancel out universal mass suffrage, that's generally a sign that we're no longer a democracy. So it's like, why do you even, voting would probably not be important in that scenario. So, but if we still have voting in elections, it's gonna require some type of democracy and there's no way you're gonna overturn universal mass suffrage. Even the standards aren't like that. It's like owning property and stuff. It's like the way our country is now is that no longer owning your own land doesn't quite mean the same thing as it did back in the 18th and 19th century. So yeah, we're stuck with it. We just have to make the best of it, but there's ways you can do that. There are ways you can do that. You can make voting harder. I don't even want to make voting. I don't even like the way of phrasing it as harder. You just have it as more of a challenge for people to go, could go vote and we're able to do that. So that is it. So now on to the next question. This comes from K Max. And he's asking, in keeping with the previous question about Harvard supporting Hamas and the backlash helping our side, many Jewish wealthy donors are now saying they will no longer donate money to Harvard and other Ivy League schools. Was this a goals of ours over wokeness? We need to 
to defund top universities as long as they taught critical race, race theory and kept bashing white people. Does that help us do that? Or do you think this will only stop the pro-Hamas stuff? Will it stop the anti-white stuff? No, it only it's only Hamas stuff. I mean, I, I think it's outrageous that these donors didn't give a shit about all the anti-white stuff and now they're caring about... And it's not even professors. It's just random students who are being anti-Israel. It's like it's not like this is coming from the official administration or or even most of the professors. It's just simply coming from student groups. And now they're wanting to fund the university over what their students are doing rather than what the university is teaching. And the teach universities are teaching anti-white stuff. Instead, they're just demanding that their universities censor more speech of their students and come down harder on that. And that the university takes position on a foreign conflict. So, no, I don't think it. I think the only way that it has any type of benefit for us is that some of these random leftists who are just horrible leftists. And when they're wanting to take elite positions at law firms or uh, financial firms or whatever, they're not getting that job, which it's not a huge win. It's not a major win, but it is nice that these horrific anti-white leftists aren't getting that. But outside of that, there's nothing really good from this. This is all just Palestinian stuff. And then actually answers his other question he had. I think he has a third one I'm trying to look for. But he uh, he asked, it was a Richard Hanania tweet, uh, this, and he said, Hanania tweeted, regular conservatives are being smart and understand that whenever you can hurt BLM and campus radicals, it's generally a good thing. Sulking is bad and doesn't get you anywhere. Calling out anti-white discrimination on the right has never been more acceptable, so things are moving in the right direction. But we'll have to ride the coattails of philo-Semitism. That is just reality, which I don't really agree with because I don't think any of this is directing towards the anti-white racism. And he asks, is your view that our side can use the Israel backlash on college campuses to help our side? Uh, no, I think it's it's all just going to be Israel stuff and Palestine. And, and limiting like student speech and what they can say is that they're going to be more concerned with ensuring that a lot of people are not allowed to say these things. So that is uh, the question for that. He has another question. Uh, so, but I'll go back to that. We'll, we've got a lot of questions, but we'll, we'll, we'll answer it later once I find it. And this question comes from Augsburg. He said, hey, Scott, what is your opinion on progressive rock? On the one hand, it seems to embody more of a dignified, higher class side of rock with performers dressing in a more dignified manner than your average rocker and the songs being more complex lyrically and structurally. It was also a conscious reaction of British musicians to a return to a European classical style that required more compositional intelligence than largely black-influenced rock, American rock and roll. But on the other hand, most of the famous rock prog rockers are quite libtarded. Peter Gabriel, John Anderson, Roger Waters. Well, Roger Waters is now kind of anti-woke, so maybe not that. And most of the fan base are crusty boomers who still hold on to their hippie value system, indistinguishable from classic, cringe, classic rock culture at large. It is pretentious and very white, and punk rockers hated it, it, which in mind is a good thing, but it is also like much industrial, filled with lots of degenerate elements like androgyny, anti-colonialism, environmentalism. Further thoughts, you're very usually good on music genres. This is a great question, and I answered it in an IQ supplement on prog rock from 2021, so I encourage you to listen to that. I like prog rock. I don't really agree. I don't think it has many degenerate elements like androgyny. I mean, they were... Like, all rockers kind of dress in the same way. They kind of dress in a goofy 70s while I don't think it was very androgynous like in the way that synth pop was. And it's very positive, optimistic music. It's not like uh, heavy metal and, and industrial, which are kind of like dark and negative and, and reveling in the darker sides of man's nature. 
And it does have a lot of classical influence. It's interesting to listen to. It's a little goofy. I don't know if it's it's held up as well as metal, and I don't think it has as quite as the powerful impact of metal does. And that's it. But I like it. I love. I think Genesis is awesome. Uh, I love Vandergraaff Generator, Camel, King Crimson. Yes. Um, so I like all that stuff. So if you, but I have a fuller answer to this in an IQ supplement. And he says that this is more suitable for an IQ supplement. Thankfully for you, Augsburg, we already have an IQ supplement, so make sure to listen to it. So I like prog rock. It's maybe not held up as well as other genres, but we are still very much into it. So we're going to try to find the other KMAX question. You know, maybe he didn't ask it. Uh, I thought he had another question, but no, it doesn't appear he does. So we are going to go back to our other questions. We've got a lot today. We've got one from a great name, Fake Cell Eradicator. And he asks, is there merit legitimacy in being just as concerned about zoning and property law reinterpretation as there is about open borders, mail-in ballots, weaponization of the courts, and selective prosecution, etc.? If I remember correctly, Obama tried to have his HUD declare that any zip code that was something like 80% white would be required to receive the blessings of Section 8 housing and our multifamily rezoning. It is kind of crazy to think about how much of a neighborhood our entire town could change in less than six months if a developer was able to buy four or five adjacent single family plots and build a 20 to 30 unit apartment complex and a parking lot. What over 100 plus magicians is something as bland and out of sight as single family zoning and building code. One of the cornerstones that still allows for a semblance of respectable civilization in select areas. If this resurfaces as a leading policy initiative for prominent leftist advocates, advocacy groups it seems right for hud to do one of those ruling updates or policy reinterpretations like the atf does and just arbitrarily change the law no it is just important because this directly affects people's lives i mean imagine you have a nice suburb and then section 8 housing comes that totally destroys your property value that totally destroys your neighborhood that destroys your community and they're actively trying to do that no biden is trying to do that too too with overturning these zoning laws and stuff and they're just as important the problem is is that they don't it's harder to advocate for it on the way that you do with immigration on a national level, but on a local level, it's more important. And this is where it's very important that you know who your local city leaders are and your community leaders are, and that they're opposed to these initiatives. Cause that's generally how they have, they occur is that they put them on the ballot and everywhere they go, they're trying to overturn these laws to make their communities shittier and more diverse. And so it is just as important as the other things. It is definitely a core identity issue, and it is something that directly affects people. A lot of people would just think like, well, immigration and things, maybe that doesn't directly affect me or these foreign policy conflicts. That doesn't directly affect me, but zoning laws do directly affect them, and that could determine whether you have a nice street you can walk down every day and not have to worry about anything, or you're walking down the street and you get robbed or mugged and your kids now go, your kid's school turns into a shithole. So it's very much important. I'm glad you bring it up. It, I probably should do more on the subject. I, as we don't really talk about it as much, this is more of an in the weeds issue or not as a hot topic, but a national issue, but it's worth discussing more at length. And I know Biden is doing a lot on trying to push HUD to do these initiatives and local groups and local efforts are trying to push that as well but so we have to be firmly opposed to that and then that is just 
as important as our other issues. So it's a, it is a core identity issue. That's a great question. So we've got a ton. So we're glad Fake Cell Eradicator is now a part of the Cognitive Elite team. We're appreciating his his questions. And now we're on to John. John asks, and we still got more questions, by the way. He asked, do you believe that if Liz Cheney had just shut up that she would be Speaker of the House today? It's hard to say what would have happened if she was still in the House and she had not turned on Trump. You know, maybe we wouldn't even have this debate over Kevin McCarthy there because a lot of this is stemming from battles over the impeachment and 2022 midterms and other factors. Uh, Well, let's say that everything, you know, outside of everything dealing with, you know, things that we still have the same situation today, still same majority in the House, still all these arguments against Kevin McCarthy, and then Liz Cheney was a possible person to put in there. I don't think she would have been any better position than Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise had a lot more cachet among conservatives than she did, and he still couldn't get the House Speakership. So, no, I don't think she would be House Speaker. It, would be, it wouldn't be out of the question, and she would definitely be one of the people put forward, but I think that conservatives definitely did not like her as much uh, as prior, and I think the, even if she had kept her mouth shut, it would probably have been gotten to Trump and conservatives that she was really hated Trump and she really wanted to move him out of the party. She couldn't have probably kept, she would have kept those opinions private, but that word would have gotten out. And st- that's similar to Scalise and Trump is that Scalise, Trump knows that Scalise is not as fond of him as McCarthy. And that was a big reason why a lot of conservatives and others opposed Scalise. So I would say no, but I think she would be in the mix. And uh, oh, here we've got even more. We've got so many questions because we still haven't even gotten a New England refugee. And he, this comes from Jay. And he's uh, jokes. He's like, looks like you're wrong about the Civil War. The country will be divided between PC, POC woke leftists and Zionist leftists. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that's looking like the fight over Israel. And he's saying the left is struggling with this one. The vast majority of rank and file leftists do not care or like Israel. A lot of them are even talking about the JQ. It's really something. Leftist professors are getting canceled for supporting Hamas. There must be a way to capitalize this. Also, the Zionist right is bananas right now. They seem like a bigger problem than the left, to be honest. I guess the question is, will the Zionist left and Zionist right sustain any lasting damage from this conflict? Have they already? Oh, Zionist left? Well, absolutely. I think the Zionist left is probably going to be over after this conflict. I think... Especially depending on how destructive the war is and whether American American gets involved, I think the Zionist left is totally discredited on, on their own side. And the left, even though they're getting canceled and there's a lot of risk involved and there's a huge backlash against them, the left is still moving in a less pro-Israel direction, despite all these Zionists cracking down on them. And... That, uh, I think they will sustain lasting damage. Zionists write, um, online, yeah, they're sustaining damage. I don't know how it's going to affect grassroots because uh, there's a huge gap between what's online and what's on the grassroots. And the grassroots, they're in rapidly Zionist. And online, people are, you know, they go from very anti-Israel to saying that they just don't want to have war. I think anti-war is a very popular position on the online right side. Uh, regardless of their stance on Israel, but grassroots and real world, it's a, a little bit different. I don't know what sustaining damage they would have from the conflict, but the Zionists left, I think it's it's one of the final nails in their coffin. I don't know how to capitalize on this. I think the left, 
you just kind of enjoy the show. Let the left turn on each other. It's like, don't take a side. Just let the POC woke leftists and Zionist leftists have at each other and just uh, enjoy the show. I don't think, because we're not going to win over the POC woke leftists because they're very anti-white, but you just let them do what they do. I think you shouldn't be supporting cancel culture and, and free speech restrictions against them, though. That's the only uh, standard I would say I have there. So now for our final question. We may have more because there's a ton of new people who sign up for Kind of Lead Option. We could have so many more as well. Uh, so, And I looked through all KMAX things. And I think we're finally down to just New England Refugee. Of course, we are never going to forget about New England Refugee. We always we always make sure he's he's included. But if you did have any questions... And for some reason, I did not get to them. Just remember just to send me another email and I will definitely get to it. So, but I'm pretty sure I got everyone. And now this is for New England refugees. He's like, hey, Scott, what are your feelings on Argentina and Javier Millet? Well, he is entertaining. I don't speak Spanish at all. I don't think he even speaks English. He did his Tucker interview in Spanish, but uh, uh, it's interesting. It's once again, like a Latin American politics are just so different than America like even some of it I think we'd all like Bukele is something that you just can't apply to America. I mean, you can get tough on crime, but his like solutions, if we ever did that, I always say that they would do that against incels or right wingers. <laughs> They'd line them up in jails and do that rather than uh, gangbangers. But there are things, and even with Bolsonaro and all those things, there's a the very, it's even, Western Europe is like different from us, but I think you can see some more parallels though with that. But with, Latin America, there's a completely different set of problems and completely different set of circumstances. He is, like, very goofy. I don't understand, like, why he wants to convert to Judaism. And he's got, like, a, a sex advisor <laughs> stuff. Uh, he's a very uh, colorful character. I will give him that. And it does illustrate, like, how messed up Argentina is as a country. It does show what happens if you do have these, like, socialist third world governments that come into power you know argentina was once a you know one of the most thriving countries in latin america now it's a shithole where everyone wants to leave and it's still majority white too and it's simply due to bad governance and a lot of these guys pushing socialist economics i know i'm sounding a little bit like a boomer here but it does like socialism generally does suck and when it happens in a country like that, I mean, certainly some countries can afford it, like Scandinavia. But even when Scandinavia is there, you know, they do have a lot of wealth uh, or these incredibly good government programs. But at the same time, they're not restricting business in the way that a lot of the like Latin American countries do. And they also don't have the high level of corruption that comes with the socialist economics like Latin America does. And a lot of American big cities would be there. So I I understand where he's coming from, but like what he's campaigning on and the issues he's voting for, it's not really what we're fighting for. But he's a colorful character. I don't know if he'll win, but I'm not really hostile to him. I know some people are uh, for some of his bizarre, um, for some of his eccentricities. But yeah, I, that would be my opinion. Uh, I would say it's something very different than what we're dealing with in America. So it's harder to say that Javier Malay is somebody like Orban, like a Latin American Orban. He's something very different. And the issues they face are different than what we face here in America. So that's my concluding thoughts on that. And that is it for Highly Respected today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We're going to have an incredible IQ supplement later this week. 
I'm hoping it's going to be on horror movies because I've been wanting to do a horror movie podcast ever since this began. Three, um, you know, we've had how many? Well, it started in 2020, and so I've had wanted to do a Halloween theme episode, a horror movie theme episode every October, but I haven't been able to do that due to uh, other issues coming up. So we're going to try to do an IQ supplement on horror movies. It's not going to be, you know, it's going to be a <laughs> stream of conscious <laughs> as always, but there's a lot of takes I have on horror movies and horror movie culture that I'd like to get out there. But if news changes and I'm having to go and focus on something else, we might not have it. So be on the lookout for that. We also have a great article coming later this week as well. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.